0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: This episode is brought
2: to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot.
0: Hey, folks, today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is an online advertising network catering to the literary crowd. Do you want to reach the literary crowd online? Do you want to get a message to those people? Go to LitBreaker.com and find out how you can advertise on a bunch of great literary sites all at once or piecemeal. It's very user-friendly. Sites like The Paris Review, The Nervous Breakdown, The Rumpus, Electric Literature. Go to LitBreaker.com for more information. LitBreaker.com. It's an online advertising network for book people. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people.
1: You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful.
2: Jesus, what a
0: struggle, you
2: know? It was incredible. It was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And
1: now here's your host. Brad Listy.
2: Just one person. Hey, everybody. Here we go again.
0: This is it. This is other people. This is fostering a vague sense of community. This is what you're currently experiencing. How's it going out there? My name's Brad Listy, and I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. I have a great show for you. Very excited about it. My guest, can you hear it in my voice? My guest today is Dana Spiotta. This is her second appearance on the program. She was, if you uh, recall, my guest on episode 31 many episodes ago and now she is back uh, in triumph as she celebrates the publication of her critically acclaimed new novel Innocence and Others available now from Scribner. Innocence and Others uh, happens to be the official May selection of the Nervous Breakdown book club. The NervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own monthly book club which you can sign up for over at the NervousBreakdown.com and uh, just really excited to have uh, Dana here and to get a chance to talk with her again uh, I think she's one of our finest novelists. So uh, rather than uh, me rambling, as I usually do, I think we should just get to the conversation. Don't you think that's a good idea? This is uh, Dana Spiotta, and her new novel, One More Time, is called Innocence and Others.
2: I remember uh, George Saunders. I work with George here in Syracuse, and he had that huge you know, cover story in the New York Times magazine. And I was asking him, I was like, so how do you handle this? What do you say? What do you don't say? And he said, you know, I just assume it's going to go really well and open up to my heart and just kind of, you know, he didn't say it exactly like that, but he more or less said, you know, you just got to trust the person is, uh, has good intentions. And I did and she did. And that was good because, you know, my inclination is to, to be really, you know, cagey, but I just thought, well, I'll just, I'll just answer her questions
0: you yeah, know, see what yeah. happens. That seems like, <laughs> that, that seems like the perfect George Saunders advice.
1: Yeah,
2: I mean, and I think he really believes that you know. I mean, he has a he's got a a real um, optimism about the world, and it, and in some ways that 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 he it bears it out for him, you know. And and my inclination is 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 to be more cynical, maybe not cynical. I don't know what the word is really to to be, to be more skeptical, more skeptical of yeah. everything. Well, I'm I assuming, assuming everything's going to go really badly and then being pleasantly surprised when it doesn't it's not such a healthy way to go through life but it's kind of like a i think it's like an italian thing uh, i remember from my grandmother where you just sort of like you were never supposed to say if anything good was happening you were and, and you're always kind of like downplaying everything because you were just going to – it was just going to be snatched away from you otherwise. You See, know? I'm Italian. It's a weird way to go through life.
0: No, I'm a, I'm Italian. Nobody ever explicitly told me that, and yet that's the way that I go through life. So maybe it's some sort but of – But you a, know
2: what I'm talking about. Like it's a weird – it's like a – I don't know. It's like a peasanty thing. I don't know what it is. It's just like you don't want to get too much attention or something or you're going to get smacked down by the gods or something. <laughs> it's just real old. and <laughs> And it's hard to shake. It's like, you know –
0: yeah. So okay. So Los Angeles. Yeah. Um. I should start by by telling you that like I I did not read your book. I listened to it. And oh, you're, you did. Yeah. You're because this is like the nature of my life and my schedule. Like I I was like I got to get the I'm I'm short on time, so I get audio books and I listen to them at double speed. <laughs> uh, so, Shut up! You do not really. Yeah, yes, because I mean I, I get a lot of books. I do a lot of interviews, and so like this is something that I've resorted wow. to. But wow. in, with your book in particular, and particularly with the jelly sections where she's doing this phone freaking, and you're listening, yeah. you're listening to the audio book at double speed. Uh, I got to say, uh-huh. it, it did something to me. I was like, whoa, you know. And then it also made me think, like, there's something, there's a, there's some sort of line between uh, podcasting and especially doing phone interviews and having these kinds of conversations and the phone freaking of your.
2: You so. know what? It's really true, and I, I've, I thought that you know I've done a, a number of kind of radio type interviews. Uh, podcast with this book, and it's really, and I, it's easy to talk to somebody who, who you know, people understand the power of a voice without a face in a room. You know, um, it's a different kind of intimacy than you get in any other place, really. And uh, so, so yeah, it's kind of the perfect way to, to do the book or talk about the book. And I think the person who performs the book did she did a really good job. I I heard some of it and I thought she was really good.
0: So. No, yeah, she did some, like them some theatrical readings. Like she's got a nice voice, and I. But of course, I'm listening to her at double speed, so who knows? <laughs> <You> know?
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, so are you able, Do you go back sometimes? Sometimes, um,
0: but it's weird. Like it. it it enforces a kind of focus upon me because you just you can't do it unless you're really concentrated. Um, so you're not
2: like at the gym or, or anything while you're doing this.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, I am. I'm like walking. Like I have to, I have to multitask. <laughs> so like I have my son this morning, so I'm like walking him in the stroller, and I've got the dog, and you know. But it's it's kind of relaxing, and it just forces me mm-hmm. to re- to really do a deep listen. But you can, you know, it speeds things up. You can get through. Uh, a novel in like you know four and a half hours and so i've
2: wow i, mean, I never thought of that i never thought of that yeah. i've listened to him sometimes on, on long trips and it's uh it's it's really helpful it's kind of fun especially with a book that you've read before you know
0: yeah i don't know if it's i don't know if i, I mean i don't know if it's like the ideal way <laughs> to enjoy a book but. no
2: it's not you know you you there's a part of me that really likes to reread uh, during reading you know yes get to the end of a, a sentence or a paragraph that you think is really interesting and then you want to go back and and do that and, and um and you, and yeah you can do it on the audio but you could press the audio play but you can't also you kind of it's interesting because you lose some of the the way that the book looks on the page you definitely lose that right you lose that white space and yeah, yeah. The space you know all that kind of stuff which you know seems important in some ways but, well, and plus but with, again I, yeah. with,
0: with a book like yours too like some of the sections there are lists and there are I'm, a, I'm imagining there were like screenplay excerpts or something like or a di- yep. mm-hmm. so you know so mm-hmm. like there's when, a
2: bunch of different formats yeah yeah mm-hmm. so when
0: there's different formats like on an audio book at double speed like you got to really be locked in <laughs> like, to keep up yeah so.
2: yeah I can uh, imagine no this would have been a challenging one I imagine for that but uh, good for you yeah that you got through it that way <laughs> so,
0: so, so Los Angeles because this uh, mm-hmm. this city you uh, last time we talked you were you know we talked about your childhood here uh if i we recall did. we
2: talked about crossroads yes, quite a bit i think yes
0: yep. we mm-hmm. talked about crossroads and how you went to high school there and and uh i think that kind of figures in as uh what's it called wake school wait what, yep okay yep. yeah so that's mm-hmm. the school that meadow and carrie go to which i think is sort of a stand-in for crossroads and um, it is
2: very much yeah you
0: mm-hmm. know and you don't live in los angeles you live all the way across no. the country in syracuse new york and, uh-huh, and where yet, jelly
2: lives in the novel, yes, yes.
0: and yet, and yet you return uh, to Los Angeles in your fiction repeatedly. Um, and you know like
2: James I, Joyce in Dublin.
0: I was just gonna I'm say exile. I was just say
2: <laughs> exactly but, like James Joyce
0: <laughs> I mean, are you are you I mean, what is it about Los Angeles that that um, lures you in? you know, is it just that this is where you spent your childhood and you're still trying to make sense of all of that, or like what is it?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that you you absorb more memory. I mean, this is, you know, be ready, Brad, because I'm going to get super technical here. Yeah, (laughs) please. I think you just absorb like more memories per second, you know, as in your first 20 years than you do for the rest of your life. It's so remarkable. I see my dad has dementia and I visit him and the more advanced he gets, um, he's very close by. He the 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 oldest memories of his childhood are still vivid, and even his memories of of my childhood, which I think were really happy years for him, uh, when when the kids were when our, when we were little, those fade. So um, I do think that you're really absorbing a lot in those first 20 years. And for me, we you know we lived in California, Northern California, before Southern California, and. Um, and 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 you know, and I would go back there, and, and I talk a lot in the book about how you you know a, a work of art is a play, is a way of measuring yourself. Yeah. Because it sort of stays the same, and you change, you know. And and, and um, I,
0: we, you should add, or I should add. Cities that. are like that. Okay, I was just going to mm-hmm. say because like it's it's not necessarily just a work of art that you make, but it's a work of art that you enjoy or consume or whatever. Like That's a, what I mean, right? Yeah. Like
2: you read Catcher in Rye when you're 15, and then when you read it when you're 30. You really you, you you notice things you didn't notice, or you don't, right? Or it's a way of measuring your own changes, really, because obviously the book hasn't changed. In some ways, I feel that way about Los Angeles. I mean, cities change more than books for sure, but but there's things about it that I respond to now, and I really wonder were those always there? Because when I was growing up, it seemed it was only this one level thing. But I was just you know you you, you just kind of and I. I feel that way about New York too, because I lived in New York as a young, per, you know, young adult and have very vivid memories of New York too. And I don't know. I think Los Angeles is an interesting place, and um, I don't intend to always write about it, but it comes. I mean, it's it's sort of a small part of of each of the. It's a bigger part of, of Stone Arabia and Lightning Field than it is of. The last book has a big part of it that's in Los Angeles, but it's a big part that's not in Los Angeles too. But it looms. So,
0: it, it looms. It's like it a, does
2: a- loom. It does loom. You know, um, it's a. You know, I, I think it's a. It's a. Uh, in this book, because it's so much about film, you're going to have. Uh, a lot about Los Angeles because of that, right? right? And even Jelly, who doesn't live in Los Angeles, she calls Los Angeles people yeah. <laughs> in Los Angeles to talk to them. You yes,
0: know? Yeah. yes. So okay, so and, like, and she
2: imagines sort the of Malibu, ha- you know, beach house instead of being in Syracuse, which I can relate to for sure.
0: I'm sure in like the depths of winter you're imagining Malibu. Hmm. Hmm. Um, so maybe
2: that's it. Maybe I'm just having a fantasy about. California. I live in Syracuse. <laughs> Could be. I mean, I just, if I'm going to make up something, I might as well be in a warm place.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right? I'm going to live in my imagination. I might as well be living somewhere warm.
1: Exactly.
0: So um, exactly. movies.
1: Yeah. Like, like
0: I'm. I think we have similar. I think you really like documentaries, which pleases me because I'm. I love documentaries. I do. Um And I want to know. I do
2: love documentaries.
0: Okay, so I want to know like your movie watching habits. Like, how often are you in the theater? Are you a Netflix person? Uh what's your what's your movie situation now?
2: Well, it's you know, I would love to go to the I like going to the movie theater, but where I live, it's only kind of like the most commercial films are around. So in Syracuse, you know, you go to the mall and there's films there. So I see the mainstream films and uh and I have a daughter who's 12, so we we go to the movies a lot. But uh whenever I'm in the city, which is pretty often, I always go to the movies. Uh sometimes two a day. And this is from a habit from when I was a kid in L.A. I used to go, you know, over to Westwood Village and we would just watch one movie and then go across the street and watch another movie or stay in the same theater and watch another just. It just didn't, it seemed, you know, and you feel a little guilty when you watch two movies in a row and it's like, and the sun is kind of hurting your eyes because it's not even (laughs) night yet. Yeah. But you just figure, well, that's, it's just, it's a great, I still love, there's nothing better to me than being in the dark with the giant screen. It's just so exciting. Even when you see a bad movie, it's exciting, you know, how loud it is. And I, I think particularly now, because you can't, when I watch a movie at home and I watch lots of movies at home, I'd say, you know. Many evenings I will do that, watch a movie after everything else is done. And um, you're always stopping and pausing, looking something up on your phone, yeah, you know.
1: Tweeting. And
2: you don't – it's so hard not to look stuff up on your phone. And your attention is is a little bit – you know, I have to be really deliberate about not stopping so much. And then when I'm in a theater, you, you can't do that. So that's
1: great.
0: Yeah. And it's also – there's something about the shared experience of watching something yes. with, with strangers at the same time and that – that human energy and like if you go to see a comedy and people are yeah. la- laughing in a genuine way it like i don't know it, it there's something great about that and i feel i feel like true. a cer- I, I feel a certain melancholy because i feel like i don't get that as much i feel like there's a certain fading to that experience as every- true. you know as everybody's watching things on their phones
2: <laughs> yeah and and it it, it it's it definitely feels like it's diminished because it's smaller it's getting smaller you know and it used to be bigger um, and more uh, and more demanding of your full attention. But yeah, that, that's interesting what you say. I do think that, that sitting in the dark with strangers, and you're all there because you want to see this film, even though it's one o'clock on a sunny Saturday afternoon. <laughs> so you're you've self selected to this weird group of people, right? Yeah. And I think it comes at the end of the book when they go to see daisies, and they're just looking around like, who else is as weird as I am? All these people. <laughs> or and when you're in a film like that, and you see and you start you're and it's a moving film and you're crying and all these people, strangers are crying in a room with you. It's a special experience. It cannot be matched by pretty much anything else. You know, I mean, it is, it is, um, not something, and I don't think it's going to go away because I think it's just like reading a novel. People understand that it's a, you know, the, I think that as, you know, as we progress, or as time goes, unfolds with technology, that some of these um, more uh, focused experiences, seeing a film in a theater, reading a novel, those are going to start to be valuable, even more valuable. This is my optimism.
0: I was going to say, included uh, included among that group, like reading a novel, seeing a film in the theater, listening to a novel at double speed on headphones.
2: (laughs) 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 Yeah, that's a sign of, no, but that kind of depth, you do get, uh, you do get hungry for that kind of depth. Yes. And there is some fatigue that comes in, a kind of sadness that comes over you when you're interrupting yourself too much, you know, you can be watching this great film and you're just keep, you know, and you have to force yourself to pay attention when you're home sometimes. And that's, that's not, that doesn't make you feel as, as immersed. It just doesn't.
1: Right.
0: You know, I dream of having like a, a really like dedicated home theater, like a room that, is just, there's nothing else but this giant, you know, big screen, and then some chairs, and that's it, you know, and like...
2: That's true, and then you don't have to watch all those previews, like the 35 previews.
0: I kind of like... all the li- commercials. Oh, commercial the, com- the commercials I don't like, the previews I sort of do like as like a tradition, you know, unless there's... This, I do
2: like... Yeah.
0: Unless there's like an onerous, you know, like there's like 12 of them, it gets a little old, but, you know, I do like, uh, especially if it's a movie I want to see, I get excited about what's going to come, you know.
2: No, I love I love previews, too, but i I don't like it when they sneak commercials in there. Just yeah. like, I just paid fifteen dollars, please, you know?
0: yeah. Well, there's like theaters in Los Angeles where, like you pay like, 22 dollars for the for the for the for like like the pleasure of not having to watch commercials it's kind of uh Uh, really yeah yeah, yeah, i know yeah yeah
2: it's just torture people and then they pay so they won't get tortured
0: anymore or just i mean i don't even know if it's that i think people just like to feel special like this is the this is the high-end theater it's like getting into the club you know it's very la Uh, yeah yeah So, okay, so uh, movie watching, like, you'll go see anything or you only, like, are you one of those people who just like, whatever's out, like, I'll just go sit in the theater and enjoy it? Or do you, uh, are, y- are you more discerning?
2: Don't you remember we had that big conversation about Michael Bay last time?
0: Oh, <laughs> I've had so many conversations about Michael Bay in my life that I, they just, they all. <laughs> I bet you do,
1: yeah,
2: yeah. It's so funny because I was looking at the old Crossroads yearbooks because there's a, a journalist who wanted a picture of me from that time. And I came across Michael Bay's senior page. And,
0: uh, Whoa, was he in your class? Th- that he was? He was
2: two years ahead of me. He was okay. two years ahead of me. And he was just, uh, he looks like he's going to take over the world. In that, you know, he just seems really confident. Oh and, my God!
0: Uh, yeah, I saw, I've wearing seen, sunglasses
2: yeah. and like putting his hands in his jeans and kind of looking down at the camera like he's a badass. Oh
0: my See, um, why don't I have that? But I'm kind of glad I don't. But you know what I'm saying? Like that, just like that. Yeah, no, you that, don't want to be that. That certainty. He seems
2: kind of like an asshole.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, did we talk about did we talk about the Apple team? We did. We
2: talked about that, but I was just saying that 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 um, it's it. it, it it, yeah I mean I think there there's a um anyway, I, I don't know why I got went off on that. I, I seem to be obsessed with Michael Bay, but only because I went to high school with him, and he actually there's a there's a reference to him in my book where I say it's kind of like a, a little bit of a, an easy joke. I call they're going to go see this man formers, you know, <laughs> shitty movie with her son. And it was like, it's clearly a joke about Michael Bay, but, um, but I, uh, I do, I have very low, I, I love serious films and I will see, you know, I will watch an eight hour documentary, um, if it's about a subject I'm interested or an f- interesting filmmaker. So I have a very high tolerance for all kinds of um, unusual films. But I also, unlike with reading, I'm happy to see the most commercial films, too, generally, generally. I'm not so into the superhero stuff. My daughter goes to see those with her dad, but I don't see those movies. They're just kind of not that interesting to me. Yeah, and I'm it's right. not because, I, I mean, I just it just wasn't my sensibility growing up, if you grew up with that which many cool people do, but not me.
0: Well, listen, I can go see, like, a superhero movie every once in a while, but it's just, like, it's nonstop. And so you talk about, like, you know, being hopeful that the theater experience is going to continue to uh, exist and maybe even, like, you know, have, like, a resurgence as people become more and more, like, digitized and fragmented. My concern Mm -hmm. is that, like, the only things that are going to be in the theater are these spectacle movies where it's, like, you know, a $200 million budget and all this CGI and, like, some, like, muscly dude yeah. in tights, like, saving the world. And it's, like, it just gets really repetitive for me. I don't know how people keep going to see these comic book movies. And I also find it kind of infantilizing. It's, like, I don't know. like well, Yeah. I mean, it's fine to go back and, like, relive your youth. And, like, it's fine to be an adult and see a, a comic book movie. But that's just all people are into. And it's, like, that it sort of limits you. I, I don't know. It kind of bums me yeah, out. Yeah,
2: it's not it, – it, it it it's definitely not – Interesting to me, and it also so usually the storytelling is really bad too. Yeah, because it just has cool effects. I mean, you know, it's not. It's but that still succeeds, and so it just seems really crappy all around. Yeah, it's sort of like that. The essay that I have at the end of the book that Carrie writes about watching crap. I mean, I grew up watching so many crappy things that I can I can endure shittiness but you get to a certain. I'm you know, 50 <laughs> now and you just think like i don't have that much time left you know <laughs> how many movies do i have left you know yeah. so so i am starting to get to the point where you, i really won't see things that i know are awful i Wait, just won't you just know? a
0: waste of time yeah. now between documentary and um you know fictional film uh films like is there a preference is there something that you tend to watch more of
2: Oh, gosh, you know, I would I like both a lot. I'm, I'm very interested in it. I mean, when I was writing this book, I was really thinking about um, the act of killing. And I was watching a lot of the Errol Morris movies. And I was watching uh, Werner Herzog. I mean, I really like the feeling I was very interested in this. The in, and, and also, um, you know, the, the other films that are mentioned in the, the documentaries are mentioned in the book. I think we talk about um, uh, great gardens and give me shelter. And, and I, and I went back and I watched some of the, the political documentaries from the early sixties, you know, it just, it, 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 it's very exciting to see, um, the different methods that people have for negotiating some of the ethical questions of documentary, you know, whether you're going to include your questions or not, how big a role the filmmaker is going to play in it. Or, you know, I watched Shoah, and it's just like, you know, he's such a presence in that film and you just wonder, well, how does it change it? Is that, you know, I was very interested in the same questions that Meadow's kind of grappling with. And especially in that, the act of killing, you know, you have like the perpetrator's sort of center stage, um, and and it's 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 very discomforting
1: to
0: watch. Yeah, yeah. Right? well, no, it makes it. Did and, you see that movie? You yeah. know, like you, you mentioned uh, the act of killing and uh, Shoah, and those are two documentaries I really want to watch. But like, it's so hard for me to gear up yeah. to do it because I know, like, and I always can. I, you know, I, I usually watch movies before bed um and so it's like i'm like i can't get myself i haven't been able to get myself to do it i need to find the time if that makes sense (laughs) like i need to watch it
2: and you need to be in the right frame of mind right because it's serious it's about serious things and you can't uh be distracted you have to give it attention of a certain kind but i mean i I just watched the fiction film i watched son of saul which won the documentary i won the best foreign film and it's you know in a holocaust film uh which you know you have to be in the right frame of mind to see yeah but it's it's a a magnificent film i mean i thought it was so interesting and um did something added something that you didn't think there was anything left to add maybe but there is and here this filmmaker it just as the way he made the film was so interesting and powerful and
0: that actor that actor is like a poet isn't he like the guy who stars in that movie is like an he's got a remarkable face yeah he's like Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say I don't think he's like a. I don't think that was the only thing he's ever acted in. I could be wrong, but I remember reading about. I more. don't
2: know. I mean, but I think there's something to be said. I kind of try to talk about this at the end of the film when we're talking about when she's talking about Andre Rublev, or she's at the very end, at the book rather. This this something about the human face, in you know. That creates a kind of. Um, a different, you know, you can have a kind of abstract, beautiful landscape, and then you put the human, a human, in there to observe or to engage, and 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 so I, th- I think fiction film is really um, interesting to me too because it seems uh, so uh, constructed. You know and and everything is is there um by the filmmaker's choice, and so it has uh, it's different than documentary where you really have to kind of you're kind of stuck with what what is unfolds in front of you or what you've managed to capture and uh and so so I do like the the feeling that you're getting somebody's complete vision
0: you know yeah well, I think there's two of, like I, I think in both cases i'm I'm amazed uh at the level of like a magic trick you know i'm amazed whenever a great documentary is made or a great fictional film is made because of the like the good luck you almost have to have or some weird alchemy that goes into it because there's so yeah. ma- there's so many people involved. Uh, one of the things that your book, I think, speaks to, and it definitely made me think of because I'm a huge documentary f- uh, fan, is how documentarians find their subjects. And there's a whole narrative. you know. That's what your book brought to light for me is that there's this whole sub-narrative going on Uh, before the film is made and then while the film is being shot uh, and then uh, obviously as it's being edited and then it goes out into the world. But, you know, how do people find these great stories, you know, and they wind up going out like like in the act of killing, for example, you know, like getting that access, all the logistical hurdles that you have to clear and the relationship building that you have to do to get a subject comfortable talking to you on camera. Um, Yes. And then to find a narrative arc in a film and i think a lot of my favorite documentaries it feels like the the filmmaker is discovering the narrative as he as he or she is making the film it's like a surprise you know you get that feeling of excitement yeah. of like it's happening on camera you know um yeah
2: no and i think that 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 is um that's one of the things i was very interested in i talked to a lot of filmmakers when i was writing the book you know about their relations the doc i spoke to some documentary filmmakers. And I was very interested in that very question, and particularly like somebody saying, which often happens, yes, I want to be this, in this film, and the filmmaker trying to explain what the terms of that would be, and then having the person afterwards watch the film and having great ambivalence about what they see. Yeah.
0: you, know? Are you please, And please tell
2: it's me. really hard to predict how you're going to feel on the other end of that, so you're agreeing to something without really knowing. So that seemed interesting and kind of problematic to me. Yeah. You
0: know? Well, I, please tell me. Are you? Are you? Did you talk to Errol Morris? Because he feels like the filmmaker who has been in that situation in a really acute way. Like the films he does. Uh, like I'm thinking of the Fog of War. You know where he gets. Yeah. And, yeah.
2: No. I I read a lot about him, and I was thinking a lot about you know the thing that the the camera he developed so that he you could he could look at the ca- subject, and the subject could look at him, but they would be looking into the camera. Yeah. And and just the problem of like of just simple things like how whether they're going to look at you or look at the camera and how he solved that so that it feels this, so you get this kind of um, interesting uh, exposure. Uh, although it's so interesting because I think that, that the Rumsfeld film, he, Rumsfeld never cracked, right? Like Rumsfeld right. is just, could he's, be on camera forever
0: and never Satan. break. He's like Lucifer, <laughs> you know, like there's, I, yes, I, yes. I, he, fre- he, he freaks me out, man. Cause I'm like, I'm like charmed by him. my wife is like, He's sort of hot, you know. She thinks he's attractive. Oh, oh come on! <laughs> I mean, oh, a, I know in a joking way, but um that's—is it called the Enteratron? It's like the—it's like the camera yes. that. So, he, so yes. he interviews, but then in his films, like the the person who's talking appears to like makes eye contact with the viewer. Basically, is looking directly yes, at the viewer. But they're
2: really talking. They're looking at the face of Errol Morris through this machine.
0: Yeah, right? that's genius, and. Yeah. um it and is then, genius, yeah. And then the other thing, like you bring up Werner Herzog, who's like a, you know a favorite of like uh, definitely a favorite of mine and so many people. Um, but I'm thinking in, in in a weird corollary with uh, Jelly and with all of this deep thought that you give in the book to the power of voice, you know, just the voice and not seeing the face. His voice, yeah. His voice mm-hmm. is such a, a central part of his films and his art. Um, it's it's well, a very, he's got the. That- Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just mm-hmm. say, it's a very rare thing, you know. I mean, it, like...
2: he's definitely someone who's a presence in his films, right? The yeah. way that Nick Broomfield is in his films, you know, personality-wise is there. And if you don't like Werner Herzog, you're going to have trouble watching his films, right? <laughs> right. But it feels like his inquiry is very urgent yes. and authentic to me. So, I'm, will- you know, so I was watching this one film um about these guys who had been killed, who were on uh, death, death row. row.
0: Wow, you really go and for the, you was, go for the dark stuff. You can do it.
2: Yeah, and he he does, and he's obviously against the death penalty. But he was interviewing the executioner. This is in Texas. He's interviewing this executioner, and it was one of these moments that really inspired me in the book because he was just trying to get the story. So he was interviewing people, right? And this guy just out of nowhere, it seemed to me, started to just confess about how wrong he thought it was to kill, to, to be an executioner and how he had to stop and how telling this whole narrative of his epiphany that he had when, you know, the last time he pulled it, you know, the plug to the person in or whatever you do when you're doing the electric chair. Um, uh, and how, uh, how it was just, um, it was so moving and he starts weeping and, and I'm thinking this is the moment. This is the most important moment in the film. This is a fascinating thing that he got. How did he get this guy to do this, right, to expose himself? And it wasn't a rehearsed kind of thing. You could tell the guy hadn't told the story in that way before, or at least it didn't seem that way to me. And and it was the best argument against uh, the death penalty I'd ever seen, much more than all the you know, trying to show this innocent person, all these kind of complicated, rational things. Here's this man just saying, this is what it felt like to kill somebody, and I could not do it anymore. I could not take this, you know. And it was just, it was incredibly powerful. So I was thinking a lot about that, the power of someone revealing something to a camera and why it is that they want to do that, why it is that the camera makes people want to tell something to it.
0: It's like the, Um, it's like the Deke film in, uh, in your, yeah,
2: yeah, 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 yeah. And I do think that there's some, there's some interesting thing that happens when people are on camera where they do want to expose themselves. Maybe they just believe that if they could just say everything, they'll be forgiven in some way. I don't know.
0: Well, I think people like to tell their stories. I like they, you know, everyone likes to be heard and there's something seductive about a camera, but, um, I just think people want to be heard and they want to express themselves. I think it's a natural human impulse, and uh, I'm always right. I'm always more mystified when someone's like super reticent and like c- totally content to just like be a hermit and you know like really? not not talk. <laughs> I mean I, I i have an I have an introverted side of my personality. I'm sitting in my garage, you know, talking to you like uh, into a microphone. So like, there's a part of me that like likes to you know work in a solitary way, but. To 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 always be in that mode. People who are just content to you know to be in that mode, you know, a, a huge majority of the time. That to me seems interesting and odd.
2: Well, there's something there's something really. Um, there's some sometimes it's just somebody telling a story like a kind of lying and trying to tell a story about themselves like they're they're kind of con and artists they're not really telling the truth they're just trying to spin what they've done, like the Rumsfeld or someone like that. But then sometimes it feels like it's a kind of optimism that people just think, well, I'll just explain what I did and people will understand, you know? Yeah. And, and that's kind of interesting too because you have so little control when you're being filmed by somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I, you know, I understand the the joy of, 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 being, to arti- of being able to articulate your own experience, but, but when you do, but I also like to control it, right? Yes. So if I'm going to write an essay about something, I'm going to know exactly how it's going to be, you know, turn out in the end but to then give it over to someone else and say just rearrange this anyway <laughs> like,
0: plus it's like it's like
2: <laughs> put anything you want around yeah. it any music you want you know? yeah
0: and play yeah. like light me and like like this is my, like they shoot me from my bad side and like all that kind of stuff yeah, exactly. Well. <laughs> that's what i'm thinking
2: what was the documentary it was like that kind of really impressed me too was that it was seemed really unfair where they kind of showed uh, i think it was the one about was it about the tooth it might have been about 92 election one of the, the election documentaries and they just kind of showed um george bush the uh the old george bush 40 is it 40 41 no, 39 or 40 41 yeah 41 no is it 41
0: yeah it's 41 and 43 bill clinton's 42 and obama's 44. okay so
2: 41 they were showing 41 and he was, didn't know he was on camera and he just looks super awkward and horrible and you just think of course anybody who's about to be filmed and they just put makeup on you and you're waiting to be filmed you're just going to look strange yes. you're going to look fake Pensive. you know any one of us would and so by 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 filming him when he thinks he's not being filmed it seemed like like cheating a little bit or well, a little bit it, unfair and and i have Meadow doing that to jelly at one point in the in the book
0: yeah i know and it's funny that you say that because we're in the height of like in this election season and it's fun. it just makes me think of like what we require of our elected officials, and to me, that sounds like a humanizing moment that actually like warms me to George Bush forty one. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like, like if he right. if if, nice. he, if he were on in that moment and were like smiling in some sort of like you know Rumsfeldian way or something, you know, like if he was just like totally not awkward, he felt like totally cool as a cucumber, that would make me creeped out. Um, That's true. That's and yet, true. And yet we seem to want like flawless performance uh from our politicians like in any kind of like moment of weakness captured on camera is then like looped ad nauseum and used as a uh as like a weapon against them strange
2: yeah it's seldom people don't want them to be humanized they want them to be perfect and in i mean perfect in sense of performance yeah
0: and it's It's true it's amazing the degree to which very practiced politicians can come close to that like where they off they don't make that many mistakes like that especially in like a repetitive election cycle like just from the from the point of view of filmmaking or just like you know filming them you know just to try to keep this on on topic like it's incredible to be filmed that often and to not have more moments that are picked apart like that these people like must just have like a mode they go into you know like how do they do it
2: yeah they're 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 sort of camera ready at all times they're just never not they're never um not ready to be filmed that's really strange that's really strange (laughs) so have you so there's that part in the book about deke and that was inspired by this movie which she mentions uh about um a portrait of jason which is this uh, shirley clark film it's really hard to see actually um and uh and she just films him overnight you know um He's getting drunker and drunker, and it's very interesting because you just don't know who's. It sort of seems like she's being exploitative, and um, but then it sort of seems like he's enjoying it and he wants it, and it's very complicated. And so you get this tension that's really interesting.
0: Um, yeah, it's, yeah, and it, you know, and it, it feels true to life, you know, because there are there are things. Like that, I can imagine a situation unfolding in real life where somebody gets drunk on camera and divulge, or not, or just divulges a lot of stuff and gets really emotional. And then the filming session ends. Everybody goes home and goes to bed. And then, like you know, you wake up the next day as the filmmaker, and you are thinking, like, is that okay? Like, are they okay with this? You know. And then, um, surprisingly enough, a lot of people would be like, strangely, I could, I don't know. It just felt true to me. You know, people like
2: yeah, he would say, yeah, no, it's a great film. Yeah. go for it, you know, Yeah. because he does, it, he, he, yeah. And, and, um, and so I think part of the trick of the book was for me as I was making these kind of explorations with this character was just that, you know, she's not, she's not, um, both Jelly and Meadow are seductive people and you could, and they're sort of manipulative in a way because they, they seem, you know, they're really, they, they're very good at getting what they want from people. But most of the people, the, everyone they deal with, is willing subjects. You know, right, they right, want right. to be produced or they want to be uh, participate. And it doesn't mean that it is right always to do it. Right? Just because somebody wants it doesn't mean that you have to do it. Um, but I, so I was very interested in that and sort of. And I didn't when I was writing it. I didn't really see those connections between those two characters as much as I did after, as I got toward. Oh, oh I see. You know, these things how they're connected more and more. Um, it's strange when you're writing a novel because you have, you know, you're really thinking about characters in these kind of very specific situations. And, you, you know, you really ought not to think about um, thematic things, you know. But then when you're revising and you're reading and you're starting to really put the shape of it together, you start to see, oh, I repeat that in a different version over here, you know, and that's kind of like the magic of, of novel writing for me is that your subconscious is really connecting things and it comes out in language and it comes out structurally and that you just have to kind of live with it long enough. And the fact that it's all in your brain is doing all this interesting work. And if you try to force these things, it just seems didactic or really schematic, you know?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, that's, I, I would agree. And like, that's definitely like how it tends to go for me, but I feel like there are some authors that like start with theme. Like they have these big ideas they want to like grapple with and that's what gets them started. And that always mystifies me. It seems like theme to me would come last. Just like you're saying, like your book would eventually, your book would eventually tell you what it's about. You know, like
2: exactly.
1: Yeah.
0: um, I
2: mean, or you think it's sort of, you, you know, I always, it's hard to sit down without having any idea what you're doing. Right. Yeah. But I always know that whatever I think I'm doing Whatever the initial impulse is, or the idea of it, or vision of it, it's going to change in the writing. I mean, that's true, even writing a short piece of nonfiction or fiction where you think it's going to go some way and you have it all planned out in your head and you go to write it down, and it just gets much more interesting to go off in some other direction when you're actually writing it. But that's, if if it's, to me, if you've already figured it out and it doesn't change in the writing, then why are you even writing it? You know? I don't know. It just seems. Something has to – something a little more mystical has to happen in the act of writing for it to be alive on the page and be weird enough, you know?
0: Mm. And then what about writing <clears throat> What about writing about film? Um, you know, like the, yeah, the, that was the, the challenge of writing, a, you know, prose about a visual medium, bringing that to life. You do it very well. Um, oh, thank like, you. Does it present – It's
2: kind of perverse, right, to try, but, you know –
0: yeah, it makes me. It makes me wonder too. It makes me wonder too. Like, does Dana have an inkling to be a filmmaker? Like, does she have a film or a screenplay in her drawer?
2: No, but I mean, I mean, I, you know, I did when I was younger. I did want to be a filmmaker for a long time. And and uh, the thing I can do is is that I really liked making up the films, right? And um, and you have again total control, so I could describe. Sort of, and I, and throughout the book there are these imaginary films, right? And you can describe them from the filmmaker's point of view. You can describe them from the person in the audience watching. Uh, and in fact, the the main film that kind of the climax of the book, this that film that Meadow makes about Jelly that exposes Jelly, you see part. You see it from Carrie watching it and thinking about her own life, and then you see it from Jelly's consciousness too. So you you can see these things from. Um, you know, different, there's different ways of telling it, or you can just do it like a screenplay. So in the book, um, I have, depending on what the needs of the moment are, uh, I approach de- describing the film from very different ways. And so as a prose uh, it was fun to be able to do that. Prose is so flexible. It can do anything. Um, as a medium, to me, uh, it was really exciting. And you can't really do that in a film. You can't really have a consciousness inflecting something. Wa- you know what I mean? It, it's almost impossible to do that in a film unless you have like a voiceover. It's not the I same was going to say,
0: I was going to say, it's like, unless you're Werner Herzog. You know, like.
2: Yeah, unless you're Werner Herzog. So having all this different ways of coming at it. And I think I just as a I just tend to be really interested in the experience of Um, listening to music or being on the internet or watching a film. Uh, I think partially because I feel my life is made up so much of that, you know, that it would be weird for me to write realistic fiction that didn't have people doing those things. You know, I don't write very much about people reading um, because that just seems very like to meta strange, <laughs> maybe, um, <but> <laughs> maybe. Maybe it. <laughs> maybe in a I future have, book, I,
0: it'd be kind of interesting. Yeah. Now that you say it, if someone could pull it off, it would be interesting to have a character just like enjoying a novel for an entire chapter. <laughs> you know,
2: like. yeah. Well, you do have some books where where it kind of like and you you know they open up the book and then you see the book in there. It's just sort of dropped in, right? There's a book within a book, so you could do that. But um, but yeah, it's fun to do that, and it's fun. You know, and, and it seems to be for better for worse. You can't really help what you're obsessions are, but I tend to, you know, be very interested in storytelling in my work, right? So how the story is being told is as important as what the story is. So I think maybe having different arts, uh, different uh, media in there enables me to kind of like play more with how a story is being told. And the subjectivity of, I mean, you know, I think I'm very interested in how we all experience things in, you know, in different ways. We could be looking at the same movie and it's having this effect on me and that effect on you. And there's that moment in the beginning where she's watching a movie with her boyfriend um, in the essay that Meadow writes. And she's kind of having all these thoughts that are secret from him. And, uh, and I, it, yeah, I like writing about those experiences, those kinds of lonely inside your life experiences or kind of connections, weird connections that you make when you're, um, when you're engaged with some kind of technology, whether it's uh, on the phone or in the, film, in the theater um, or on your computer. Uh, the way that I think you feel both, it enables you to connect with people and it also keeps you distant from people. So that tension, I mean, I think fiction is really good at getting at these kind of paradoxes of things that are both, you know, Mm. and, and a lot of uh, the technology I write about is both something that draws you in and creates distance. So that seems interesting.
0: Yeah, it is. And I feel like I I get the strong sense when I read your work that like, you know, this is a a woman who's really paying attention and who's uh, reading a lot, who is paying attention to culture um, you know, I can feel the obsessions, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, the, Good.
2: no, the, that's great. That's a high compliment as far as I'm concerned.
0: Yeah. Like the phone freaking and the, the, the jelly character who is, um, I think a derivative of a real, uh, story mm-hmm. that was out mm-hmm. there. So I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, so Dana's like reading and she's picking these things up and like, I can, I can feel like, um, you know, you reading something and the stickiness of it, like it's, you can't shake it. And then. You know, now here it is exactly. in front of me in fiction, and so I guess what the question that comes to mind for me is like like uh, we've talked about your movie watching, which is pretty voracious. Um, what other patterns of consumption, you know, from a media standpoint? Like, how often are you reading a book? How often are you reading? Like, do, how many magazine subscriptions do you have? Like, what is your intake? Because it seems like <laughs> it seems like you have a high level of intake, which is great because your books are yeah. so your books are so rich in ideas, and I don't think you get that kind of. Um, feeling when you read a book unless the author's really taking a lot in. I, it would seem that Yeah, way. I mean,
2: I tend to be pretty – when I get interested in something, I get pretty obsessive about it, and I tend to write characters who are obsessive. So I don't know if they make me more obsessive or I make them obsessive. I don't know. But, um, but yeah, so, so – I, and I still – I'm more efficient than I used to be. When I first started writing, if I were going to write about um, – Something I would just have to know everything about it to make one sentence, you know, and I think partially that was just out of fear and lack of confidence and, and also maybe just a procrastination and Now I, I do as much as I need to do, and maybe a little bit more to get but i don 't over go as overboard as I used to, although I will say for this, I do kind of become really interested in telephones and the history of the telephone and read a lot of books and, and listen to a lot of telephone sounds and found a bunch of old telephones and bought some old telephones. And, you know, some of that is really fun. It's kind of like method acting for me to just kind of go deep. When I was, you know, jelly's blind for a while and her boyfriend's blind. And I went to the, to the lighthouse, which is a place in in Manhattan and I hung out there and I just kind of like, like doing that kind of research. And some of it is reading and some of it is observation and talking to people yeah. and just paying attention, as you say. And, and I just find that, I like losing myself in it. That's what I really like. Um, It's like you rediscover yourself in these surprising ways because, you know, what you're obsessed with is kind of what you love tells you a lot about who you are, right? So the fact that you're interested in it means something. But I don't concern myself with that too much. I mostly just think like, oh, this is amazing. This person, you know, is so interesting. Let's find out everything about them. But, yeah, so I read a lot and I always – I miss – Sometimes when I'm in a novel and I have to do a lot of research, I miss reading for fun, mm. you know, and inspiration. And um, but I teach and I teach literature classes to MFA students, and so we do a lot of close reading of great, interesting books that I get to pick, and and that's really just it's so wonderful really. yeah, it's like, um, it's
0: like enforced discipline too. You know, like you have to go in, if you're going to teach it, you really have to know it. So that's like, it sort of yeah. pushes you to, to, to give it like the, the deepest possible read.
2: Yeah. And it gives me a lot of joy and inspiration. It really does. And sometimes when I get kind of bogged down, cause I'm reading too much uh, contemporary fiction and I'm just kind of, over it, even though I think there's a lot of really great contemporary fiction and student work, a lot of great student work. But you just you just want to go back and read something that either you read before or you never got to that is just really important that, that everybody thinks is interesting or worth reading. And you go back and you find these amazing things in it and you get these incredible ideas about how you can go about doing this thing. And, and I'm very interested in novels in particular. I really love the novel as a form and I love thinking about it and I like teaching it and I like writing it. So it's exciting. It's exciting. I, I think at this point I'm at this point where my excitement and my confidence is there and I'm not kind of all burned out yet, and I don't think it'll last forever, you know. So I really want to work a lot.
1: Well,
0: but because listen, I think at some point
2: but, I'll just get be like, oh I'd have nothing else to say.
0: But your your uh your your friend and and uh, sort of mentor Don DeLillo, he's still going strong at like 80. So who knows, right? He's such
2: an inspiration, yeah. Because but I think his the the key with that is that he he doesn't repeat himself really. I mean he he does have his obsessions for sure, but the novels are so different from one another that uh he doesn't really you know like everyone wants him to just do you know do white noise again and then do underworld again just does something different so i think he's a real artist and he's also got a lot of discipline you know yeah he's got got, uh, what is it energy
0: silence exile cunning like i feel like he's got this streamlined life that's how i I imagine him and i've kind of read about him he he writes and then he goes running and then he i guess he or at least he used to i don't know if he's still running but, uh, and then he goes back and like edits or writes a little bit more, but he's got a very kind of disciplined life, no kids, you know, like just, yeah, it's all about, yeah. the, it's all about yeah. the work. He's,
2: he's, he's, he's like, um, you know, that Flaubert thing about, uh, he, uh, He's on the page, and his life is, is – he lives a bourgeois life, they call it. That's what, what what Flaubert would say, the bourgeois life, so you can have this kind of crazy life on the page. And maybe that's the key, the kind of monkish thing. But also, he was very—he was at the 92nd Street Y, and he said something very funny about that. He said, yeah, I got from James Joyce, silence, exile, and cunning. And he says – he's very funny. And he said, um, I never really had exile, though, right. because I stayed in New York. And I'm not that cunning. So <laughs> just silence, right? It's like,
0: yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Well, he's you
0: know he's he's very reticent. I'm I'm dying to have him on this show. I know there's nothing he would love more than no, a, never. To, yeah, never. No, um, but never. he was saying something that kind of kind of dovetails nicely with what you were talking about earlier with respect to memory and why Los Angeles figures uh, so uh, largely into your fiction is that um, you know as he what uh, he's 80 years old or approaching, I think. Is that right? Yeah. And he is talking. He was talking. I was reading about you guys talking to each other at the 92nd Street Y. Yeah. He's he, talking about the Bronx. Yeah. He's talking about like the memories of my childhood. Just they get clearer and clearer the older I get, and that's fascinating to me.
2: It's really true, and it totally reminds. And he's the same age as my dad, and and although he's his his brain is in, in amazing shape, his he's, he's uh, obviously. Um, a genius and, and going strong But still that idea that, that when you age You start to That the memories have become really vivid Are the earliest ones And he wrote a lot about the Bronx In Underworld Which is what I said Because there's all like the street games and stuff And yeah. he said it was the easiest writing he'd ever done it just flowed out of him. Well, that opening, and
0: that opening section at the baseball game is, is incredible. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like standalone. Yeah. Like if I ever, if I just wrote that, I'd be like, I'm done. <laughs> <You know?
2: laughs> well, that was originally a novella and it's been, he, they actually published it as a novella, pop out the wall. But, I, but I do think when I read underworld, my favorite parts are the parts in the Bronx. I love all that stuff. Yeah, it's, it's just a, so, it's so detailed. It's so specific, it's you all, know,
0: it's all right there, but he, yeah, he's an incredible yeah. writer. And, uh, uh, I'm curious to know too, like the 92nd Street Y. I've been reading about mm. the 92nd Street Y and hearing about it, like for a lot of years. It's just—is it a YMCA? Like, what is I it? I don't
2: know. What is it? It's is really it- like a cultural institution. It's not. It's. It's a. Uh, it's um, um, no. It's. It's. It's not. It's. I don't. I don't really know. It has classes and a school there. Okay. And cultural stuff. I don't think you can. Maybe you can. There's a pool there, too. I don't know. I don't know.
0: Can you work out and then go see Don DeLillo in conversation? You can, I think, yeah.
2: Yeah. I went to another one in in D.C., Six and I,
0: which is like that, too.
2: But it's an actual synagogue. But it has cultural events and, you know quite high-end cultural events you
0: know that's cool Uh, yeah
2: yeah it's kind of interesting so
0: you tend to there's
2: got to be in la there's got to be an equivalent right
0: well yeah it's like the skirball center or like uh you know disney hall i mean i don't know i'm trying to think of like where the literary events would happen but there's there's, there's a handful of them you know right um but you have published it seems like on a five-year schedule (laughs) did you notice that
2: yeah, I know. It's just like, I keep trying to make it shorter and then it just seems that it takes that long because you keep kind of like a year where you're just not really doing much, which I'm in the middle of right now. You just have like an ideas and you're thinking about it. You're taking some notes and maybe writing a little there and here, kind of all over the place. And then you, that it takes like three years to write it. And then You turn it in and then you kind of revise, you know, it gets kind of revised and then that's it. Five years have gone by. So it it just seems to take that long. And I don't know. I do think that the, the novels, it's hard to write a good novel really fast. And of course, that's been done. Right. I think Faulkner said that he wrote As I Lay Dying in six weeks, you know. Um, but I don't think it's so useful to compare yourself to William Fox. <laughs> I was gonna you know? say I was gonna say um, but I think generally it's the living the daily living with it over years that gives it that kind of density that I'm interested in. And um there's a the the really intense part of writing is maybe a year and a half in there where you're just every day, you can't, you can't stop. You just have to do it all the time. Um, so there's a lot of just like, you know, daydreaming worked into there I think too at either end. Okay. Um, and I really like doing, I really like revi- revision. I really like fixing line, you know, I'd like doing that a lot. That's really fun. I like it when I have the whole thing, a complete draft and I'm, I'm sorry, messing with it. You can like you that.
0: can say swears. You can say uh, whatever. Okay. <laughs> no, it's, it's okay.
2: Not fucking with it. But you know what I mean like just you have you understand the whole book now. Like you're yeah. at the end. It's almost impossible to know what it is till you get to the end. And I take a long time to get there because I, oh the other thing I do is I read over everything I've written after I get to the end of each section, either end of a chapter or the end of a scene. I'll read over everything before I add more. And so you get that again, you get the deeper connections and the density and the interesting weird Repetitions and then, um, and you can sort of make these structural analogies. You know, you sort of say, okay, I have an essay here, I'm going to have an essay in the third book. Can I do that? I'll try it, that kind of thing. And then um, when you get to the end and you sort of see, oh, and you go back and read it all, that's a great. Moment, because you have this sort of three-dimensional structural thing in your head now. The, hard, the hardest, the hardest part it. is
0: over. The hardest part is over at that point. For me,
2: like. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it takes me a long time to get there, and it's mostly done when I get there, except for you know line work. But sometimes some structural things will happen. But it's almost like you you feel the structure. You're making those structural decisions, especially uh, in the last third. You have fewer and fewer you've made so many decisions that you have fewer and fewer options in terms of ending it. And so when you get to the end, it's this great relief because you, it's been in sight for a while, you know? Yeah. And then, um, but then, yeah. And I, I, it's interesting. There was a couple, I mean, with stone Arabia, I had originally um, intended to have that, the end of the book, which is a sort of set piece when they're younger in the middle of the book. And for a while it was there. And then I, moved it so but usually the structural thing that i end up with is the one that i stay with okay i so, make major structural
1: decisions
0: all right so let me i want to back you up a little bit because you talk about having like that year of daydreaming like after the publication of a book you the next year you're right. sort of and that makes sense to me you've got to like replenish you know so you're watching movies you're reading books you're taking notes you're sort of letting your your mind your subconscious start to do its work or whatever
2: um yeah and you're writing nonfiction or you're doing other things you're promoting the book so you're talking a lot about the books. So it's hard to think about a new book, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Oh,
0: okay. So talk to me about the moment or the, the period of time where you begin to pivot from that mode into the more fevered creative work. Like, you know, how do you know when you've got something and you're like, okay, this is, this is it. I'm going to start now. You know what I'm saying? Like, where do you, what is that moment like?
2: Well, I mean, this is, this, the I had this idea of of what I wanted. As soon as I was done with this book, I had a new novel that I wanted to write, and I started doing work research for it. And I hadn't written very much, but I just had taken a lot of notes and thinking about it. And then I decided, eh, I don't want to do it. Because it's kind of like getting married or something. You can't do it lightly. (laughs) Right. And so you're kind of trying. Like, my view is I don't want, I tell myself, I don't want to write that book, and I keep pushing it away. And then if it keeps, if it comes back and I can't push it away, then I keep going. And so this one, I, for the first time that this happened to me, I pushed this thing away and it just stayed away. <laughs> so, so it didn't grip me. So usually it's just something that you can't avoid. That's a good sign. Like if you can't stop thinking about, like, well, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna write this down because I can't stop. I have to figure this out. And to me, it's like these questions. You know, I can't figure out why. So with this book, one of the things was this. You know with catfishing, people pretending to be other people on the internet, yeah. and I'd remembered this woman, Miranda, who called these these wealthy men in Hollywood, and I was thinking, you know, how? why would you do it? Because you're going to, at some point, they're going to ask you for a picture, or to see you, and you're going to have to admit that you're not this person. And so I was very interested in just, it seems, there's a weird kind of for the moment quality to it like you just want this connection or you just or maybe it's about
0: power it's tragic i I found it heartbreaking i found it really sweet like there was something romantic and tragic about it to me
2: yeah and i and and i think what it was so interesting to me when i was writing jelly is that she kind of you know we never know whether jack would have really liked her as she was because she never gave him the chance right? right she just kind of she just lose she just preempts that in some ways and in some ways the person who hates the way the the what she perceives as a mismatch between body and soul is jelly you know and and it's weird because she she had such good sex with Oz so it seems too bad that she's kind of
0: worked herself into this corner by the way is, way is Oz uh based on Steve Wozniak the Apple founder
2: no but it, it's based on this guy Joy Bubbles who was um at the same time, like like you were right, he was a uh, Oz was a phone freaker and all of that. But but Joy Bubbles, I'd read an obituary of his uh, of Joy Bubbles in the New York Times. I had it like in my on my bulletin board for years because he was so weird. And uh, he is this uh, like Oz blind phone freaker, but he could do it by he. Had, uh, p- perfect pitch, and unlike the other guys who had to come up with these little boxes, he could just whistle and do it and uh, and he was kind of this savant of the phone and he even does there 's a thing in the book where you know where Oz gets in trouble on purpose you know on the phone right and he did a version of that, ended up getting a job with like Ma Bell or something uh, um, well, and he couldn 't find work you know even though he 's a genius so he's, if he but he's the real life uh, joy bubbles is much. Weirder than Oz. The real life I mean the personality of Oz. I always say like I get the outline from real life and I do the inline is totally imaginary. So the interior of Oz is completely imaginary. Like this this guy who speaks in the way he does and has this kind of likes jazz and is kind of sexy or whatever. That's yeah. nothing like this guy. This guy was kind of like very strange and he joined up with people. Do you know what up with people is?
0: No, I. Be, bring, oh my
2: God! Oh, you would love this, Brad. You have to like. There's a documentary about it. Okay, I okay. think it's called Smile. All right. But it's this kind of like quasi cultish Christian right wing kind of answer to being a hippie. Okay. And it's a chorus group.
1: Oh God. And it's okay. sort
2: of weird corporate sponsorship. It's um. It's called up with people. It was kind of like it's kind of like um. Yeah, it's a sort of like counter cult counter counterculture, I guess. All right. And I think Glenn Close was in it or something. Okay. But anyway, so he joined that. <laughs> and it was, like, too weird to even put in the book. I, I, that just sounds – that's just – I can't put that in the book. So there were a lot – and he had his own radio show, and he was, you know – he was very childish, very childish. But a fascinating person. So I took a lot of um, ideas from – his relationship to the phone
0: well, for Oz and I just, I made just w- him
2: my own guy. Well,
0: I mm-hmm. just want to let you know that the entire time I was reading those sex scenes, I was imagining Steve Wozniak having sex. I want to thank ah! you for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I shouldn't say that. That's so mean. Uh, I, I know. Maybe he's a super sexy dude. Yeah, he's, he's a sweetheart. He's a sweetheart. Um, so, and then the other thing I wanted to ask you about uh, process is you talked a little bit about it already with regard to revision, but you you know you're layering all throughout. You're rereading, adding... Um, mm-hmm. editing as you go, and then you get to the end, and the structure tends to be intact. When you edit, is it more addition than subtraction, or subtraction than addition? Generally speaking,
2: it's both. It's both. I mean, I tend to to write lean, and then, you know, like that old idea of like adder, inner, take her outer kind of thing. Um, where I will write the most, I'll get from A to B very quickly. <laughs> in a scene and then when I go to put it in the computer because I write longhand I'll add whole things in there and go deeper and deeper and deeper so I tend to do that sometimes when I'm first in that first draft going adding in adding in each time I read I'm adding in Um, and then but then I get very um, when I'm doing the editing I get very ruthless and I sort of there's things that aren't working and if I can't make them work I cut them you know if there's a sentence I just can't get right it's can't be there or a scene that I can't get, it can't be there. So it's cutting. And then can I, do I need it anymore? Or I have to write something else to go there, you know? So sometimes I can't fix something and then I cut it, you know? Mm. Um, And a lot of times when you can't fix something, it's because you, the idea underneath it is muddled or you're not, you're trying to be precise and you can't be precise because you don't know what it is that you're trying to be precise about. That's why. So it usually points you to some other problem if there's a language problem, there's something underneath that's a problem. So if you fix the underlying problem, then you can find the right language for it. It's weird. So, so there's a lot of cutting that happens in that, but sometimes it's whole chunks, like a whole paragraph that just have to go, you know. And yeah. you're like, wow, it totally works without that paragraph. It's just like a, it's a it's a demon paragraph that's just been there and I like, haven't had the heart to get rid of it and look how much better it is without it. That's what it needed to be totally cut. It takes some time to figure that out sometimes.
0: You know? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go delete half of my novel in progress right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I hate
2: this. I hate this. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Because, you know, it's so liberating and you think you've worked so, you're working something and sometimes things get overworked Yes. and they're just too broken and that's a really hard thing to teach a student too because they just, you just think like, you're not wasting your time. Because you're going to write another paragraph that's so much better because you went through that hell with that paragraph, but you really need to throw that one in the garbage because it's just hopeless.
0: Well, yeah, you know? it's, it's, but it's like it's like balancing that recognition and wisdom against like the wisdom of persistence and like making sure that you don't jump ship too soon, you know, quit early yeah. or whatever. So it's like, yeah, it's, I think it's an intuitive thing. You get good at knowing the more you do it. It's a byproduct of working at this for a lot of years
1: it's
2: really hard for me because I get still at this point where I've read it so many times that I start to really have a distorted relationship to it. And I know it's time to stop, mm-hmm. you know, editing because I'll just sort of say, this is really, this is, this, this whole scene is so boring. And then I just like, wait a minute, you've read this a million times. <laughs> of course. Are you being really, you know, You're well, just, suddenly you could just start taking everything out, you know? Well, well, it's like when and it, that's a bad point.
0: It's like when Meadow watches that uh, film over and over again <laughs> and, like, by the 11th or 12th time, yes. you start to go yes, batty. exactly. You know?
1: um,
2: yeah, and you have to break on through. So I do, I do think that you can over, uh, you can get to the point where you ruin something, too. When you get to that point where you're putting things back in that you cut out, that's usually a sign that you need to take a break or step away, or you know, get a cold reader to read it. Yeah.
0: Do you have a good editor? Like, do you do you get pushback from your publisher or at this point in your career, or like, what w- what you hand in is mostly what we get in the book? Like, how does it work?
2: Well, I have a sa- the same editor, and uh, and I definitely listen to what she says, but I make my own. She's, you know, we don't always agree, but she has. A uh, good, interesting pushback that she does, and I have a, a couple of readers who do that for me as well. I usually don't show it to someone until it's done, but this time I did a little bit because I read from it a couple times. So there's some people had read, so I had gotten some feedback, but but the whole thing altogether, and um, and that uh, and I and I always listen to you know. Um, uh, I live with the the novelist Jonathan D, and he had some very interesting things. And the Nan Grandma editor, she had some interesting things. And my mom, she's a really good reader. She had some interesting. So, so it's interesting to I do have I do like to hear what people respond to and what they notice, and um
0: does and da, I don't always does agree Don, with it. Does you know, Don, does Don DeLillo read your stuff before it goes to press?
2: Yeah, he does, and he always has good comments too. And um, that sounds intense. Uh, but sounds again, inti- it doesn't it change very much from. <laughs>
0: Hmm? It says that sounds intimidating to give your book before you know. Like, here, here you go, Don. Like I mean, maybe that's just me projecting, but he. Uh, he's yeah, well,
2: a- you know, he, he's been a friend for a long time, and and uh, and yeah, you always. And the thing is about when you give it to someone at that point, where you, I mean, like I said, it's, it doesn't change very much, um, but but you can say that that. Somebody will notice a sort of this doesn't make sense or I didn't really understand this or there's some clarity issues or I think this that there needs to be more here or something like that um, or I didn't quite, you know, those kind of suggestions where you find the solution yourself rather than somebody saying, you know, this whole scene must go. Um, that, that can be very helpful, I think. And, uh, but then you were, you're always sad because these people you really value never read the final ver you know, you want them to read the final version as a clean reader and they never get that <laughs> chance. So, so in a weird kind of way, when you give it to someone to read, when you're still working on it or you're still adjusting it, um, it, they're, they're sort of contaminated for that, you know, the final version.
0: Isn't that, a, that's weird. And they read the rough yeah. cut.
2: Yeah. They're kind of reading, they're looking at the rough cut, but yeah. Well, and, um, Yeah.
0: I just uh I'm going to make a prediction. I think there is going to mm-hmm. be a point at which you are going to make a film of some kind. I don't know when it's going to happen. <laughs> I think it's coming though. I don't know. I don't know what form it'll take. Um and I am very excited to hear about uh whatever it is that you come up with next. I don't I won't ask you for details because I'm sure you're probably protective of that at this stage or is can you give us any clues? Mm-hmm. Yes. Can you give yes. us you can give us any clues as to what you're obsessed no. with? No. No.
2: No, okay. no clues.
0: No clues. <laughs> That's very... It still
2: needs to be the private, it needs to be private incubation period. You know? Yeah,
0: I respect that. I respect that. But uh, so fun talking with you and just a thrill to get to feature this book in the club. And I wish you well uh, on whatever is next.
2: Thank you. I always have so much fun talking to you. You're really just so great to have conversations with.
1: Well, thank
0: it's very you. very
2: easy. So thanks for having me again and thanks for reading the books. I really appreciate it.
0: Listening to the book.
2: <laughs> Listening to the book. And maybe one day when I'm in L.A. and, you know, maybe I will actually see, your, actually see you in person, but we'll see.
0: Yeah, I mean, we'll have to see. It could be a huge letdown. I don't want, you know, I feel like things are going well. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Send me a picture first.
0: <laughs> yeah, right, right, exactly. Uh, well, All listen, right. thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Brad.
0: Okay, guys. Dana Spiotta, her novel, Innocence and Others is out there now from Scribner, go get it. You can find Dana online at danaspioda.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars as always for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget that this podcast has its own app, The Other People with Brad Listy app. Go, go get it wherever you get your apps. Uh, it's the best way to listen to this podcast. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. It's very user-friendly. You get the most recent 50 episodes for free. That's how it works. So you get the app on your device, on your phone. When you do that, the most recent episode will be there waiting for you. The most recent 50 will be there waiting for you free of charge. And then if you want to get at everything, if you want to listen to uh, all of the episodes, more than 400 and counting, you just sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app. It costs uh, 75 cents a month. That gets you access to everything, 75 cents a month. I believe that comes out to about $9 for the year. That's doable, right? It's a great way to support the show. So uh, don't forget also about the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Uh, you can sign up for that over at com. Get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. I handpick the books, and then I interview the authors on this podcast. Do you see how that works? It's a very nourishing experience. So, part of the reason I didn't talk at the top of the show is that I was sitting there and I was thinking, like, what's on your mind? Like, what do I want to talk about? What have I been thinking about lately? And all that I've been thinking about that I could uh, recall over the past day or two is uh, politics, Donald Trump, the dystopian fucked upness of that. And I just didn't want to mention it, especially in conjunction with the Dana Spiota episode. It just seemed to cheapen the whole thing. Plus, like, aren't we? We're already sick of that, right? We're already sick of, uh, the election Trump it's insanity to me <laughs> I feel like I'm living in some sort of weird uh, uh, I don't know it's like a, a m- bad like made for television movie version of American politics told, feels dangerous do you get that sense? Am I just getting too worked up about this? Please remember that Edith Wharton died of a series of strokes and that W.H. Auden died of a heart attack in a hotel room. That's, uh, that's it for now, I think. Thank you to Dana Spiotta for being here uh, a second time. Go get her novel. It's called Innocence and Others. Thank you to Scribner. And uh, thanks as well to you, the listener, for tuning in. really appreciate that. And uh, I will be back uh, next week with another conversation with another author Or writerly person Someone associated with storytelling You know you know what I'm talking about This episode and Dana's book They uh, make me want to watch movies They make me want to go to the movie theater If you've read the book You probably know what I'm talking about If you haven't read the book Then maybe you kind of know what I'm talking about Based on the conversation that I had with Dana It's good to go to the movie theater just sit there in the dark. Have a uh, dreamlike experience if you can. I'm trying to think of the last time I was in the movie theater. It's probably for. I think the last thing I saw was like Ice Age 3 or I mean, some kid movie, you know. Which, they aren't that bad. I kind of like them. I need to go see a movie. I need, to, I need to toughen up and start watching some darker movies. I've gotten soft. I've talked about this before. Dana shamed me. She watches all of the darkest and most depressing documentaries. Unflinchingly. That's my impression. I watch Ice Age 3.